have a Bible, and let's turn to Acts chapter 8. All right, well, let's read together in uh, chapter 8, starting in verse 1. We're going to pick up right on the hills of, uh, of Stephen's martyrdom. It says, And Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word... Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. The crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God, In the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I may lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could attain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me, the, uh, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me, Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word and the hope that it gives to us. I pray that it would be a word that moves us to be more faithful to the mission you've entrusted to us in taking the gospel into the lives of others. Would you use this word to shod our feet with the message of peace 
that we may take peace to those who are in turmoil. And the message of freedom in Christ to those who are held captive. And the message of light to those who sit in darkness. Uh, We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So to this point in Acts, of course, Jesus is, is reigning in heaven as king. He is victorious over sin, death, and the devil. And then he, he pours out the Holy Spirit on the church, empowering them to, to take the gospel to the nations. Okay, But as, as the church as the, is spreading the gospel, as the gospel of, of the kingdom is entering new territories and, and confronting new cultures, it is hitting several obstacles. And we wonder, will those obstacles stop the mission of the risen Christ? Uh, We encounter four obstacles today, and they have everything to do with obstacles you experience in life. How many of you read stories about the persecuted church or wonder, uh, and, and you start to wonder as you read these stories, whether the persecutors will win out? Or you read stories of influential people passing policies that that don't tolerate Christian witness. And you fear for the church's survival. How many of you are tempted by the evil one and the powers of darkness? If you're not a Christian, Ephesians tells us that you, you follow the devil around like a slave to a master. If you are a Christian, the Bible says the devil has been cast out of heaven and he makes war against the saints on earth. The devil works through deception and sexual temptation and physical ailments and relational struggles and desires for praise and selfish ambition. I don't have to list any more to help you taste the battle. You know this battle. How many of you have been affected by ethnic pride and prejudice? For the last couple of years, events and stories have peppered the media, provoking all kinds of of discussions on on racism, both individual and corporate. In some cases, Christians have taken constructive steps forward in addressing these issues with the gospel. John Piper's book, Bloodlines, is a great example In other cases, though, the ignorant responses of some Christians can leave one wondering, will the injustice prevail if even Christians lack insight to these matters? If even Christians remain divided on these matters? Or how many of you have grown rather frustrated with false teachers and pretenders in the church? You wonder whether their deception will eventually mean the downfall of Christ's kingdom. So we see, we experience persecution, powers, prejudice, and pretenders. These are real obstacles we face, but there's good news in today's passage. In the end, all of these obstacles prove to have no power over the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. Obstacles will rise, but the gospel of his kingdom will march on. 
Jesus and His Word are unstoppable. That is the message of today's passage. So let's look at some of these obstacles that, that the church encounters as, the, as, they, as they are preaching. And the first obstacle we see is that of religious persecution. Religious persecution. Stephen was, was just martyred. And then it says, There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Verse 3 says that Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He, he dragged off men and women and committed them to, to prison. So Saul, Saul is ripping families apart, Christian men away from their wives, Christian women away from their children. Will these fires of persecution be the undoing of Christ's church? Will their witness be snuffed out? And the answer is no. Look at verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. This is not an accident. Turn with me to chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. Now go back to chapter 8, verse 1. Where did the persecution scatter them according to chapter 8, verse 1? Throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. God is sovereign over persecution and its results. Persecution didn't stop the gospel's advance. It relocated some Christians right where Jesus wanted them. In Judea and Samaria, preaching the Word. Persecution may move Christians around, but it cannot keep Christians quiet about Jesus. Those who were scattered went about, it says, preaching the Word. Now, preaching may be an unfortunate translation in our culture because we normally think of preaching as something a pastor does behind a pulpit. But in this case, the idea is that they simply shared Christ with others. It wasn't just the leaders who shared. It wasn't just the evangelists who shared. It was all the scattered Christians who, who were sharing with people that they met. Listen, unplanned circumstances will move us around sometimes. But we must stay alert to the opportunities God gives us to share Christ with those we meet. It's simply part of who we are. Wherever we, we happen to find ourselves ourselves placed by God's will, we share. We'll return to that at the end. But for now, just take, take in the fact that the obstacle of persecution didn't stop the gospel. It actually served to, to spread the gospel. It's an old saying by Tertullian that the, the, the blood of the martyrs is actually the seedbed of the church. It's where the church grows. And, and, and Gary spoke of this earlier with the example of, of Nate Saint and Jim Elliott and the guy and the other and all the five that, that died in, in ministering the Alcos. And several years later we we learned persecution did not stop the gospel advancing among them. It can't stop the gospel from spreading. Another obstacle the church encountered was was demonic powers. Demonic powers. One Example in this passage of demonic powers comes in verse 7. 
It says, For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. So there are many who were oppressed by demons in Samaria. Another example of demonic powers comes in verse 9 with Simon the magician. Okay, it says that he previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Now, when you think of magic, don't think of some clown at a kid's birthday party. All right? We're talking about a guy who manipulated the supernatural to get results. We're talking about a guy who performed miracles. He amazed the people. It says this man is the power of God that is called great. This is, this is what they were saying about him. In chapter 13, verse 10, we'll run into another magician named Elymas. And Luke makes his connection to the demonic very explicit. He calls him the son of, a devil, son of the devil and an enemy of all righteousness. Simon works for the same dark lord. His whole life revolves around manipulation to gain attention for himself. He wants their worship, and that is certainly demonic. Manipulation in order to gain worship for yourself. He put the people in long-standing bondage to false worship. Verse 11 says that they had paid attention to Simon because for a long time he had amazed them. And so we have this, these obstacles of demonic powers, unclean spirits, a celebrity magician that they worship. We don't think much about the demonic in Western culture. We have the tendency to interpret the world merely by what we can see. But we need to know that demonic influence wasn't just their uneducated way of explaining problems. When the Bible speaks about the demonic, it's portraying the world as it really is. The Bible reveals reality beyond the visible world to the invisible world. And the demonic influence is real, and it is big. 1 John 5.19 says that the whole rebellious world lies in the power of the evil one. In other places, the Bible links the sin of idolatry. Think of all the idolatry. It links the sin of idolatry to demon worship. Revelation portrays the great red dragon controlling kings and kingdoms and moving them around to do his bidding. He has a kingdom of darkness that deceives people and oppresses people and systematically sets people against Christ and the church. When we're talking about the church encountering demonic powers in the book of Acts, we're talking about the collision of two kingdoms. The kingdom of Christ with the kingdom of darkness. But what do we see happening in the Gospels when Jesus comes with His kingdom? We learn that these two kingdoms are not equals. We see the kingdom of darkness bow before Jesus' authority. Jesus doesn't give in to the devil's temptations, proving that he is stronger than the strong man. He casts out demons and unclean spirits with a word. They, they bow and tremble before him. They know that he has the power to destroy them. What do you want to do with us, 
Holy One of God, have you come to destroy us? He grants 72 disciples authority over all the power of the enemy. He explains that when he's lifted up on the cross, he will cast out the ruler of this world, which is Satan himself. 1 John 3.8 says that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus, he overthrows the devil's place of authority in people's lives so that now when the gospel spreads, his chosen ones will believe. The God of this world who blinds the minds of unbelievers, they hear the gospel and and the gospel opens their eyes to the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's happening in Philip's ministry. These demonic powers cannot withstand Philip's word. He casts out the unclean spirits, and as they're freed from their oppression, verse 8 says that great joy fills that city. Freedom in Christ from oppression leads to joy. That's why we sing as Christians. We need to think differently than the world thinks about our mission to the world. Our mission is to bring entire cities joy in Christ. That's the goal of our mission. Our mission isn't to smother people. It is to bring joy in Christ as they are freed from their oppression. Notice also that the the people... They stop listening to Simon and they start listening to Philip's message about Jesus' kingdom. And in verse 12, a number of them even get baptized. They identify themselves with Jesus instead of Simon. So the gospel is pictured here as rescuing them from their long-standing bondage. In other words, these demonic powers cannot withstand the ministry of the risen Jesus through the church. These demonic powers will try to keep people deceived, but... When the gospel comes and the Spirit applies the gospel to the heart of God's chosen ones, they believe and they are free. That's why we must preach the gospel. It's the gospel that transfers people from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. A third obstacle the church faces here is ethnic pride and prejudice. Ethnic pride and prejudice. We need to remember the the relational tension between Jews and Samaritans. Okay, you you might recall when Jesus comes to the woman at the well and he sits down with her. This this is a bold move by Jesus because she's a Samaritan, and John tells us Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Uh, in Luke chapter nine, Jesus he he. He sends some messengers ahead of him to kind of prepare the way. And, and they entered a village of the Samaritans, it says. And these Samaritans, they don't receive Jesus because he has his face set to Jerusalem. And they don't want anything to do with Jerusalem. And so James and John notice this and they say, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Tell us how you really feel, James. Turn them into Sodom. Now. These are not friends. This ethnic tension largely has to do with the monarchy ripping apart a thousand years earlier and later the Assyrians intermarrying with those in Samaria, spreading their foreign culture and religion. 
To a Jew, a Samaritan was a political rebel, a racial half-breed, and a religious phony. To put it, to put it nicely. The closest illustration from our own country's history is that of public water fountains labeled whites and colored under the Jim Crow laws. This is cruel, ugly hatred. That's the ethnic pride and prejudice the church is up against. And yet, what do we see Philip doing but going down to Samaria and sharing Christ without discrimination? He has seen something about this Jesus and this gospel. They believe. They get baptized. Ah, but then something very odd happens. The Holy Spirit doesn't fall on them. Uh, If we look back at chapter 2, verse 38, Peter Peter promised that uh, when somebody repents and gets baptized, well, God gives them the Spirit. But here's, there's a delay. A delay. It's very odd. Verse 14 says, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who had come down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they laid their hands on them, And they receive the Holy Spirit. Now, why the delay until after the apostles come? It wasn't because it was necessary to have an apostle present. Ananias prays in the next chapter for the Holy Spirit to come upon Paul. And the Holy Spirit does come upon Paul. And Ananias himself is is, is no apostle. It's also not because they needed a second blessing of the Holy Spirit. Luke very clearly states that the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on any of them. The closest parallel to their situation is the initial group of disciples back in chapter 1, where you had this 120 before Pentecost. They had believed and they were waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. Luke's point isn't to argue for some kind of subsequent spirit baptism. The best explanation is that God intentionally withheld the Spirit, until the Jerusalem apostles came in order to show the incorporation of Samaritans into the Jerusalem church. As Acts continues, this fits a much larger pattern where we see that Luke is showing the spread of the gospel and the gift of the Holy Spirit to new groups of people. First group is the 120 at Pentecost in chapter 2. Second group is here, what we're seeing with the the Samaritans. And next is going to be the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, verse 11, which is following the pattern of of Luke's narrative that the gospel would spread to those in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and then to the end of the earth. So the point is to show that the Samaritans and the Jews are united to the same Savior and brought into the same church by the one Spirit. The gospel that saved the Jews in Jerusalem is the same gospel that is saving Samaritans outside of Jerusalem, which is the apostolic gospel. It is another way of saying, like Colossians 3.11 says, 
that here, in Christ's community, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Governments and secular organizations will attempt to make laws and regulations to break down ethnic barriers. The world will create social groups and liberation movements to reform society. But the truth is that no person, group, agency, or movement that lacks the gospel of Jesus Christ can overcome ethnic pride and prejudice in the heart. The only power that overcomes ethnic pride and prejudice is the power of the gospel to all who believe and the gift of the Holy Spirit. It is the only message of Christ, it is only the message of Christ crucified and risen that shatters ethnic pride and prejudice. What is the greatest thing you can do to address our society's questions and confusion and division and anger over ethnic pride and prejudice? The greatest thing you can do is share the gospel, starting with yourself. The greatest thing you can do is share the gospel, starting with yourself starting with your family, starting with each other in this church, and then starting and then on to your neighbors and the nations. Ethnic pride and prejudice are great obstacles to overcome, but they're no match for the gospel of Jesus Christ and the work of His Holy Spirit. Those who believe the gospel... They all have the same need, which is the need of Jesus for salvation. And when they believe, God gives them the Spirit and He unites them into one body. One more obstacle the church faces here, and that is manipulative pretenders. Manipulative pretenders. I'm talking about Simon. In terms of outward appearance, Simon is uh, Simon. It says he believes, and he's even baptized. He joins up with Philip, but then we're given some clues as to the nature of his faith. It's it's qualified in uh, in verse thirteen. He's quite infatuated with the miracles that Philip is performing, and we've seen this kind of faith before especially in John's Gospel where, John, where Jesus is performing miracles, and it says some of them believed in him, and yet later it, shows, it proves that their faith was actually spurious. So this gives us some pause initially. It makes us wonder whether Simon has mistaken Christianity for some new and better kind of magic. Now, Luke himself is very careful to distinguish the miracles of Philip from the miracles of Simon so that none of his readers mistake Christianity for magics. They differ in power, for example. The power is not in the magician. Let's see verse 10. This man is the power of God. They're they're attributing the power of 
uh, of the power resting in, in Simon himself. The power is not in the magician. Rather, Philip performs his miracles by God's power in the name of Jesus Christ. They differ in terms of their content. Uh, Simon was preaching a message about how great he was. At the end of verse 9, he was saying that he himself was somebody great. But Philip, he preaches the message about how great Jesus is and how good, how, how good the news is about Jesus' kingdom. They differ in terms of their morality. Simon was performing these miracles to bring himself glory. Philip calls it wickedness in verse 22, but Philip performs miracles to draw attention to Christ and bring healing to others. Uh, And finally, their miracles also differ in terms of their belief, uh, what, what, what the two of them are actually trusting in. Okay, Philip... Trusting Christ alone, apart from anything he can do to earn God's favor, Simon, however, proves that his belief is actually defective. Outwardly, he was going through the motions, but he proves to be a pretender. After all, what was he really trusting in? Just another divine power that he could manipulate with money. What happens in verse 18? It says, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I may lay my hands uh, may receive the Holy Spirit. He misses the Gospel. The true Gospel teaches that we can't do anything to merit God's grace. And yet here, Simon tries to buy the Spirit. God gives the Spirit as a free gift to His people. And yet Simon tries to turn the Spirit into a prostitute for selfish gain. Simon warps the Gospel into a false Gospel. And Peter then rebukes him with the severest of language. Verse 20. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot In this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you're in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. He is exposing Simon as a pretender. The idea is that if he thinks God is just another power to be bribed, then Simon can go to hell with his money. He has neither part nor lot in this matter. Meaning, Simon, you have no share in the true gospel. You have no share in the kingdom of God. Thinking this way. His heart is not right before God. His bondage to his, own, to his old ways, it still remains here. Simon must repent. Simon must trust in Jesus as he truly is and not as Simon thinks Jesus is. So Simon responds, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, it's difficult to tell Simon's true spiritual state at the end of verse 24. I mean, is this genuine repentance or is this just fear and worldly sorrow and, hey, I don't want that to happen to me. We're kind of left hanging. The text doesn't tell us whether Simon continued with the church or not. 
But Luke has a different point. That's why it's here. The point is clear. The true gospel exposes pretenders and Christ's kingdom doesn't welcome false gospels. It doesn't welcome false gospels. The church should not be a place where pretenders feel comfortable. Ever. But where pretenders get exposed and called to repentance... It's not loving to let people keep believing that they can manipulate God with anything they do or have. It's not loving to give, the, give people impression that they can work for their salvation. It's not loving to let people keep believing false things about Jesus which will lead them to perish. We must call pretenders to repentance. We must call pretenders to bow their knee to the truth of Jesus Christ. Pretenders may come, but they're no match for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel exposes pretenders for what they are and reveals the true God in Christ. So persecution, powers, prejudice, and Pretenders, all are real obstacles, but none of them possess the power to stop the risen Christ. The gospel of his kingdom will march on. And so what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? I want to give you four brief exhortations. First, share the gospel with people. Pretty basic Christianity, 101 here. Share the gospel with people. Wherever God has you, share the gospel. Share it with your friends, share it with your spouse, share it with children. Share it with your neighbors, your co-workers, your acquaintances. Don't fear the various obstacles that will come against you. Don't be intimidated by them. Jesus is unstoppable. Will it go smoothly every time you share Christ? No. These rebel powers don't give in easily. We can see that even in the example with Simon here. What's important, though, is that this passage tells us that these these other powers that we will face, these other obstacles, they are lesser powers. They are not ultimate powers. Jesus has proven his superior power over them in his life, death, resurrection, and his present reign. And he continues to reveal his power as the gospel rescues people from darkness. Just to be clear, what is the gospel word that that, that Philip is sharing here? What is the the word that that we're going to share with people? Well, it it summarizes it in verse 4 as simply the word. Some, those who were scattered, uh, went about preaching the word. But as you read, the Word becomes more specific. It's called the Word of God in verse 14. It's called the Word of the Lord in verse 25. So this is not a message that originates with you or me. It is a message that originates with God. It is God's message. He stands behind it. Uh, God's message, what is it about? Well, it's about God's kingdom. Verse 12 says that Philip preached the good news about the kingdom of God. So it's about a kingdom, God's kingdom, and and His kingdom is it's breaking in to the present world order. 
And it is replacing all rebel kingdoms with God's kingdom. It's about this kingdom. Jesus Christ is the central figure in that kingdom. Uh, Verse 5 says that Philip proclaimed to them the Christ. You see also in verse 12, the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. So herein lies the heartbeat of the gospel. The gospel is about what God accomplished in Christ to reconcile sinners to Himself and into His kingdom. It's about God the Son becoming a man to identify with us. It's about Christ's perfect obedience to God everywhere we had failed God. It's about Christ's substitutionary death where He bore the punishment for sin that we deserved. It's about Christ's resurrection and His ascension back to the Father. It is about Christ's present heavenly reign and His gift of the Holy Spirit to anyone who believes. And it's about Christ coming again to consummate the ages and bring His kingdom on earth in its fullness. This is the message we share. This is the the message that overcomes demonic powers and ethnic pride. Second, as you share the true gospel, expose false gospels. As you share the true gospel, expose false gospels. I mean, Philip doesn't hesitate here just blasting Simon for believing a false gospel. Simon believed that he could win God's favor with money, and for the sake of his own soul and the church, Philip exposes him. What false gospels does our age teach? How about this one? God is loving and we're all okay. Or this one, just trust your heart. Just trust your heart. Or this one, God only helps those who help themselves. Just try harder and God will accept you. Believe in Jesus and you will be healthy and wealthy. You just need to get your act together. Jesus is the best way, but not the only way. Let's sin all the more so that grace may abound. Sin doesn't matter. I'm still going to heaven. God doesn't know everything. These are false gospels, and there are hundreds more that our society feeds us. And they are detrimental to faith. They do not reveal Jesus in truth, and they're leading people straight to hell. Let us be careful not to believe them and let us be careful to point others away from them and call them to repentance. Third, pray for the Spirit's power. Pray for the Spirit's power. We've got to go back here a little bit to chapter 6, verse 3. Philip, to see this, because we get into a situation like this and we go, and we're amazed, but you need to understand where Philip is getting his, his wherewithal to do this. And so, Chapter 6, verse 3 reminds us about this, where 
he says, uh, where they say, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. And one of them they pick is Philip. So, so all that's happening, all that we read about today, is the result of Philip being full of the Holy Spirit. And we must, we must remember, Philip is a man full of the Holy Spirit. We must remember from places like Matthew 12, 28, that demons do not come out of people on their own or by human power, but by the Spirit of God, Jesus says. We must remember that the uniting of these Jews and Samaritans into Christ's body, the church, it comes as they receive the Holy Spirit. So let's not leave here with this triumphalist mentality uh, in an attempt to tear down demonic powers and ethnic pride in our own strength and in our own cleverness and our own uh, man-made strategies. Okay, we cannot do it. We must pray for the Spirit to fill us or our labors will be in vain. Only God the Spirit can accomplish these things. So we need to pray for Him to empower us and pray for Him to set captives free and we need to pray for Him to, to root out ethnic pride. And lastly, don't lose hope. Don't lose hope when you face obstacles like the ones we've looked at today. There are more that we'll encounter in in Acts. These are just four. Don't lose hope. God's word will never cease to advance until people from all nations believe. Yes, some of these obstacles will affect us very deeply. We may lose loved ones to persecution. And that's real for this church right here who have dearly loved ones in countries that don't want them there. We may lose loved ones to persecution. The, the devil may pluck away the seed of the gospel at times. We may be sharing our hearts out every week and pluck, pluck the, the seeds are falling on rocky soil and Satan is robbing the gospel from bearing fruit. Our own pride will hurt others. And their pride is going to hurt us. Pretenders will do great damage to churches. We have to recognize that, yeah, we're going to... These, these obstacles are going to affect us deeply. We, we still live on this side of the, of the kingdom. We're in the, in the not yet still. But the decisive victory, we have to remember, has been won. And Acts is giving us little glimmers of how the risen Christ is spreading His kingdom on earth. The powers that be cannot win. Compared to Jesus, they are lesser powers and fleeting powers. And soon, Christ will return to replace all rebel kingdoms with His own. And multitudes will sing, as Revelation 19.1 says, Hallelujah, salvation, and glory and honor and power belong to our God. Until then, let's gather some more worshipers to join us in that song by sharing Christ in the power of the Spirit and let us spread joy to as many cities as our lives will touch. Why don't we pray together?